Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome once again to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is, as always, the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, and one thing that they'd like to bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the comedy writer, performer and producer, and the human avatar of the intergalactic election crusader, Count Binface, John Harvey. John has written, produced and appeared on a number of major TV shows, including The Thick of It, Have I Got News For You, Time Trumpet with Armando Iannucci, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Fantasy Football League, The Last Leg, Comic Relief, News Night, The Revolution Will Be Televised, The Late Edition and Room 101, to name but a few. He's been making radio programmes and podcasts for over 10 years, including The Ultimate Choice for BBC Radio 4, hosted by the brilliant Steph McGovern, which he co-created with Joseph Morpurgo. And he's also produced five series of comedy legend Rob Newman's acclaimed shows for BBC Radio 4, winning two BBC Audio Awards. John's debut book, A Fan for All Seasons, is a memoir about sport, grief and his brother Dan, who passed away, sadly, in 2015, which he talks about in this podcast. John has stood in elections as Lord Buckethead and then as Count Binface against Theresa May, Boris Johnson and in the London mayoral elections, campaigning for justice, lasers, lovejoy, affordable croissants and the return of CFAX. Actually, it would take ages to tell you all the things that John has done in his career, so let's see what he reveals about it and himself as he tells us the five things, possibly, he wishes he had in a time capsule. Here is the all-encompassing John Harvey. 
we have more in common yes. than we'd know. And of course, uh, now you've told me that we've actually worked together. Yeah, many moons ago. It was when I was just starting a BBC comedy. Mm. And I just worked on this sort of seminal programme for me, Time Trumpet, with Armand Iannucci. Yeah. Uh, which was, I mean, again, it had such a variety of stars on it. I was completely... <laughs> I, I, I was having to pinch myself every day that I was in TV centre working with the likes of Armando, Stuart Lee, mm. you know, Mark Watson, Richard Iardi. It, it was just, you know, it, it, amazing place to be. And then after that, that summer, um, Armando was trying to get this audience sitcom away called Shush, written by and starring Rebecca Front and Morwenna Banks. And I came on board as a sort of runner researcher guy. Yeah. And we're sort of basically helping you as well, um, getting your But teams. you would now, having just described it simply like that, yeah. it's a pilot show, it's been written by and is starring Morwenna Banks or Rebecca Front. You would say the BBC would absolutely jump at that, wouldn't they? Slam dunk. Mm. But produced by Amanda Produced Nucci. by Amanda. Yeah, you'd think, well, what's stopping them? Just and, and who was it written by? Um, the two women, Re- Rebecca and Morwenna, and Arthur Matthews from yeah. Father Ted. Yeah. And you think, I mean, literally, it ticked every single box. Mm-hmm. And it was funny. And um, I was there on the recording night, and I thought, well, this is... I feel like I'm I'm at the start of something here, and I oh. felt quite proud to be there. And it, and it didn't happen. And I remember Armando fought so hard for it that I think you guys got a second pilot, which is unusual. We right? did it again, yeah. Yeah, to try and convince them. But I've never known a reaction to an unknown show like we got for that pilot. They roared with laughter. It was a really funny show. Yeah, yeah. and it was just... Mad. It's one of those universal things about people's... A lot of people, when they're doing sitcom theory, they say, oh, you know, whatever you do, don't set it on an on an icebreaker or on Mars. You don't need to do that. Find something universal. Well, you know, a public library... Yeah. Um, actually, is a very, very sweet and universal place to set it. And mm. it was... There was just, I don't know, I thought it had everything going for it. It, it ended up on Radio 4. Yeah. So they did make it in the end. Mm. But it, it was, um, yeah, it was a missed opportunity by the BBC. But then I think it felt to me that at that point there was a lot of um, missed opportunities at that point. And maybe they're not going to get the chance now. Because back then, even in the noughties, it felt to me like the BBC was still a byword for British comedy. Mm. It really was. The lion's share of of great stuff still came from the BBC. Yeah, can you say that now? Because the the money is so scarce for that kind of material, and and they it's much harder, much more expensive to put a sitcom on than the equivalent of Gogglebox. Mm-hmm. And so, it takes a very brave commissioner to put it on, and um, and also to let things fail. Um, yeah. And I'm one of the things I'm going to uh, put in the time capsule is it comes on to that. Is it, you've got to have bravery with comedy that yeah, it, yeah. and it feels to me like because it's kind of a cottage industry in Britain anyway the Americans will just throw money at it and they'll have a, a 20 episode first season run Schitt's Creek is a good example of this where everyone yeah. says you've got to stay with it for the first couple of seasons <laughs> like 40 odd episodes and then it's the best thing ever and like, for, like most British sitcoms that would be like six series yeah. and, it, and it just never gets that point where it's allowed to mature and reach that point where it clicks and it's yeah I just for some reason it feels to me like we just we don't give one of our great traditions, of, which is comedy, um, you know, the space is due. No, well, it is an absolute truth that so many of the things that we hold dear in comedy would never have survived today. They would not have made it. The mm. first series of Only Fools and Horses was not a success. Mm. Very few people watched it. It's a different style to the rest of them. We yeah. learnt from that first series how to write it and what was great about it. Yes, and remember that because that's one person wrote all of that. Amazing. And yeah. would they even allow that to have a single authored sitcom? It's really, yeah, but 
America, they do, they work in a more team-driven environment. And there's a lot to learn from that. But again, you know, John Sullivan's like output, and it wasn't even just only Fools and Horses. You know, he wrote Citizen Smith and yeah. all sorts. I mean, do we give those kinds of writers the sort of latitude that they were given back then? Or or like with not so much the stuff you did with, um, you know, Radioactive and KYTV, the, that progression from radio to TV was mm. such a clear avenue yes and so much so that when i've so i've made lots of radio now i feel very proud to have made a a bunch of radio for stuff Mm. i kind of assumed that would then graduate to tv but there just isn't that same uh sort of pathway that there used to be apparently they're trying to rebuild it at the moment i'm not surprised because it was a deliberate effort i think to sever it for i it seems to me for at least 10 years now there seems to be almost this disconnect so you're either a radio comedian Mm -hmm or a TV comedian, and, and, and never the twain shall meet. And it's no. and with hey, look at us, we're doing a podcast. And some of the biggest comedy names now are doing podcasts mm-hmm. and, and having their biggest success with it. I mean, the one that immediately comes to mind is Off Menu. Yeah. You know, James and Ed doing this, This it's, it's obviously a passion project, and yet it's enormous. And, and then, two people have not really found a path on television. Mm. They've not found a way to be as big on television as they are in the podcast Or world. even perhaps needed to. No, absolutely. And, and that's the crazy world we're now in where, I mean, I thought things changed when, uh, was it my dad wrote a porno, I think maybe broke the mould when they filled the Albert Hall. Yeah. With the podcast. Yeah. And that, I mean, that blew my mind. I'm like, this is, the okay, the world has changed here. And and it's interesting. Cause and was, the world as well, because not only the Albert Hall, but the Sydney Opera House. Yes. Yes. Podcasts can fill this. Now, some people would say, okay, well, you only need 5,000 rabid fans. <laughs> True. It, which you think isn't that huge, but as if they all come. Most of my fans are rabid. <laughs> okay, fine. Well, we need to get that. <laughs> I, I just think, yeah, the, the times they are changing, but there is clearly still a place for TV comedy. Mm. You still see things, you know, breaking through and doing well, but uh, I don't know. It, maybe we're crying an, an, an age that's gone. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I think I even yesterday made the joke about something being an oxymoron. I said, you know, oxymoron like army intelligence or ITV comedy. (laughs) And it's not true. It's not. But the funny thing is that it is now. But when I was a kid, I watched comedy like way before I probably should have been. Mm. And like, like it was my, my brother and my dad were obsessed with it. And um, a great example is the new Statesman, which was on in our house. Like I was being seven. Like when I was watching that, <laughs> and this is a this is an MP, Tory MP who takes drugs. Uh, he uh, there are death threats. Someone commits suicide in his house. Um, yeah, he's a rampant sort of sex maniac. All this stuff happening. <laughs> I was watching this like I mean I didn't understand all of it. The slapstick was hilarious. Yeah, that was ITV Sunday night mm-hmm. prime time, mm-hmm. just like Spitting Image. Was. Spitting Image as well. And you yes. think. It, like ITV obviously has gone on a huge journey. All, all the TV channels have since it, but the uh, people now would probably just be utterly shocked that primetime TV in those days was so astonishing and so dangerous that they were putting that stuff on. And like you say, now, I mean, since Benidorm finished, I th- I think that's it, isn't it? Is there, yeah, yeah. They got anything? seems to be. Yeah. They'll have to find another way. And you can't just do panel shows. No, you can't. And in fact, even those are getting shut down now, you know, mm. things like Mock the Week. And it's interesting how, my feeling is as soon as, and I used to say this when I was there at the BBC, that eventually things are going to become sort of genre-based, not channel-based. Eventually, no one will care whether they're watching BBC One or BBC Two. They're just looking for the, the drama or the sports or whatever. Mm. And my feeling was as soon as iPlayer and these on-demand services became dominant, that 
a lot of the features of what makes a TV channel would f- would fall away. So I'm convinced that surely eventually they shows like Homes Under the Hammer and Cash in the Attic, which are total staples of daytime TV, mm. will disappear because nobody goes on iPlayer and goes, I'm five episodes behind on I'm Homes Under the Hammer. pick up, yes. Yeah, so th- that stuff will disappear. Mm-hmm. So what will they be left with? Well, maybe this. Maybe what they'll yes. do is they'll just have people talking. I, well, that is what's happening to radio. And ra- was it Radio Gaga? You're yet to have your finest hour. Maybe, <laughs> maybe someone needs to do a TV Gaga. That it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not. Had it. I, I, I still think good things will happen. You know, the ingenuity of people in the arts and you know, in TV should. We should never be too downhearted. But it just feels a little bit like you know we're maybe we're just. The technology is changing so fast, and the money is getting so scarce, and mm-hmm. and things are uh, commercialization is happening at such a speed that maybe we're just all struggling to keep up, and we need to wait for things to settle a bit. Who knows? Yeah, well, yeah, we'll yeah, see. Well, but I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing your conversation about having bravery and courage in these things because that's what is needed. Yeah, they need to go. Well, do you know what? I like it. Yeah. If our commissioners can be inspired, then the future is probably bright. Yes. Well, you know, I like to think the future's always bright. <laughs> you know, it can't get worse than it is. Well, you say that, and then, of course, before we know it, Trump will be re-elected. Oh, and, good Lord. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And suddenly there's a European war. Yeah. yeah. How yeah. lovely. Yeah. Well, before yeah. that happens. <laughs> before that happens. <laughs> let's, yeah, exactly. let's generally talk about things that you love yeah. from your life and that you cherish and you want to put in a time capsule. Yeah, so first off the blocks, the first thing I'd love to put in a time capsule is my old computer. And by that, I mean my Spectrum. Right. And by that, I mean my Sinclair Spectrum, ZX Spectrum 128K plus two, which was my childhood computer. And Mm. then I'm putting that in because it firstly reminds me of my childhood. And you're probably going to tell in this uh, conversation, I'm very nostalgia based, but it reminds me of the 80s. And instead of putting in something like a Sega Mega Drive or a Nintendo, this is incredibly British because it was one of those computers where... I remember playing it was as much a question of trying to load the thing <laughs> and the games as actually playing it at all, let alone the idea of finishing it. Like they, finishing a game, no. I don't even think they had a finish. They, I don't know if they ever wrote them. It was just, it was such a joy to even get this thing to operate. And and that was my childhood, whether it was at home with my brother and sister, Dan and Lucy, or my dad had a, a not very good estate agency in Croydon, mm-hmm. around Crystal Palace area. And we'd be shut away in the back room while he and my mum tried desperately tried to get people <laughs> interested in properties, um, playing these weird games. And it's a, the, there was a... The, it wasn't like watching playing Sonic the Hedgehog or Mario. The things that people were even making the games about were weird. The maddest one was called Jet Set Willy, which yeah, which sounds odd, but <laughs> it, it, it's like a platform game and you're collecting items. But as a kid, you don't realise what's on the front cover, which is a man. He's wearing a morning suit and he's got his head down the toilet because he's been vomiting from a big night. <laughs> and the plot is, the game is his wife saying you need to pick up all the crockery before you can come to bed or something like that. And as he's doing it, there are all these insane flying objects trying to kill him whether they're forks or chefs or pigs it's in it's mad and it's like being on a trip and um (laughs) that's what i used to do like on a saturday afternoon but then so that's the one end you had the the surreal stuff and then there was the incredibly mundane Mm -hmm. that these get programmers were making games out of and top of the list which we'll probably come on to in the uh, discussion later because it was inspirational in a weird way we had a video game called election 
Right. And all it was was a simulation of a British general election. Oh, my God. You chose your party... You had to choose your policies, build a manifesto, you know, there was the, and, and then watch as the as the night happened. It was this terrible blocky graphics. And my brother, who's nine years older than me and was obsessed by this kind of politics stuff, got me into it. So I was I was the little kid watching him playing a game which was effectively watching a ropey computer simulate election night. <laughs> that was entertainment. People must have been queuing up behind you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think we might have been the only people in the entire world uh, playing this stuff. But weirdly, it was there was something sweet and fun about it. Well, know? that is part of the joy of it, isn't it? That actually it was probably just a bunch of people in their bedrooms making these things up and then saying to Atari... What do you think of this? And they go, anything will do. Yeah. We need to get some stuff out there. Well, there was this strange, almost Python-esque humour about these programmers who were, you're absolutely right, they were doing it in their bedroom. Mm. And they didn't, it wasn't like there was some big monolithic company saying, no, you you can't make a game like that. These things ended up, they, they ended up being like two ninety nine in WH Smith's and it was on, on a cassette. And mm. it seemed to be that pretty much anyone could make anything. And so the, the variety of stuff that you'd, go into the shops and buy. And, was, and we didn't have much money as kids, but this was even within our price range. And so mm. you, you you just have a punt on a sort of Formula One game and you get, oh, this is, this is terrible. You can <laughs> barely move a car. You can barely, yeah, if, it, if it loaded. But then just these strange things that you would pop into our living rooms, like a lecture game. There was another one. Um, my brother was obsessed with the Grand National and uh, he got a Grand National video game. In fact, he got two of them. One was called Sport of Kings mm. about horse racing, which was literally getting children to gamble. <laughs> and so half the game is you choosing a horse. And then it would simulate these little blocky graphics, a, a horse race, and you would find out if you'd won 50 quid or if with you... With odds were, or, and yeah, everything. Yeah, <laughs> with, with a bookmaker who was smoking a cigar. Of course. Yeah. So that introduced me to betting. Age six, I knew what each way odds were because... <laughs> I mean, now, no chance. They'd, they'd be banned before you know. And then there was this Grand National game where you got to be a jockey and actually ride the Grand National. But... I don't think I ever completed it without either crashing into a fence or the horse collapsing from exhaustion because we were pressing the buttons too hard, which basically is the most realistic Spectrum game ever made. Yes. <laughs> it's sort of the brutality of the Grand National I feel in front of us. That I missed out on that oh. generation. I really did. Uh, I think when those things started, I was at an age where, in fact, I had my own children, so I needed to spend my time with them and they weren't at an age where they were playing them so I by the time they got round to being interested in games I was so far behind it I just had no idea what was going on I did once spend about six months became completely obsessed with Football Manager Pro yeah and I played that every my wife would are you coming to bed or not (laughs) in a minute in a minute hang on a minute we're playing Leeds Terrible. Apparently, that was is, is, premier manager was cited in has been cited in several divorce cases. I'm not surprised. As, as the, I think it was a particular moment when it was it was so hot. I mean, on the spectrum back in the day, there was this the original football manager game mm. where um, it was so bad. The most exciting bit for a sort of six year old was you, they'd go, do you, do you, "Would you want to see the match highlights?" Yeah. You, you press, I think you press ninety nine for it to happen, <laughs> and it, suddenly the screen goes green, and these tiny blocky pixels would go like. Eh. <laughs> and, the, and then suddenly the ball would either go in the net or not. But for us, then the, the because you're, you've got a child's brain, mm. it's like watching real football because yeah. you're so it's excited. Final. Yeah, you get so invested in it. And I think the reason why I love it is it's a very weird bit of time in the 80s where it was just before the big companies like Nintendo and 
Sega and then obviously PlayStation, Sony took over before they'd dominated the market. And these strange, eccentric British pioneers, so Clive Sinclair and Alan Sugar with Amstrad, Mm somehow briefly got a stranglehold on the market with this British technology. It's a very unique moment which could never happen again. And for me, there was there's a real even though there was incredible frustration to it because it was kind of crappy and mm-hmm. that's why it disappeared. But there was a joy to it as well, a sort of an, an innocence to it. Because yeah. it was the start. But even now still people start up these things and every now and again one of them would have an absolutely unique and brilliant idea, rather like we were talking about with the comedy, mm. where somebody would do something and it changes the game. Mm. It changes the way things happen. And all those big companies that nowadays go straight in and buy it and they just incorporate it into their system. But they're not thinking of it. They've got all the money, they've got all the stuff, but they're not the ones who are inventing it. Yes. It's somebody in their bedroom. That's right. And I think you still get moments where the, that the creativity comes to the fore. A more recent example is, um, as a video game fan, there was that Nintendo game, Goldeneye. Did mm. you ever play that? No, I don't play any games. Uh, well, you, I should, I, 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 you, you, should, you should try it. Are you I saying have Nintendos. A PlayStation. I, have, I have a PlayStation, I have Nintendos. And they're it's for behind my grandchildren. you, Michael. They're for my grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> I'm going to be out of here and you're going to be on FIFA before I know. But uh, they, so this GoldenEye was this Nintendo 64 game. In, it came out in the mid-late 90s. And it was this brilliant sort of 3D rendering of, of being James Bond. Mm. And uh, you could play multiplayer, so you could, you could shoot each other and, and have these wonderful games. But it was made by a bunch of British people, real underdog team spirit about bringing that game to life. And yeah. I think you're right. You get these flourishings of creative endeavour and this country is... I mean, we have a huge video games industry, but I think a lot of it is happening now for these mega companies. Mm. But uh, it doesn't mean that good stuff doesn't happen. But I just haven't got time. No. So you've got a baby now. Well, this is before that, even. Like I just, I should because the, the worlds are too big. Now I've got a baby. Like if I get a five-minute game on FIFA, I'm lucky. Like <laughs> this, like, this, that is just gone. But even then, like I'd be playing this Western game, and it, it tells you you've you've got you've completed like eight percent. Eight percent. I've been playing this for like ten weeks. <laughs> I'm like I've shot about a million. But yeah, there's so many missions that you have to. It's for people who can just throw themselves into it. And yeah, yeah. It's it's all about being immersive. You, if you're someone like me who likes to dip in, then um, you know it's just uh, you're, you're missing it really. So mm. I need to one day. I need to put myself in the time capsule <laughs> with all these games with and, it uh, and, and play it again. Yeah, what I want to put in the time capsule is partly it's that it's the feeling of that innocence of playing something without firstly having to pay fifty quid on getting it in the first mm-hmm. place, but also that innocent joy that it's not about finishing, it's not about or even the gore. It was all so innocent, and um, I feel like it sums up a time that yeah, I'm not sure we'll quite get back again. I don't know if you're going to talk about your brother at all and, mm. and your book. Yes. But that must be tied in with that memory for you. Yeah. Well, so Dan, my brother, he he blazed the trail. He was the one who had these Spectrum computers before I did. And he, he so much of what I love was sort of channeled by him. I mean, he, mm. he was nine years older than me. Oh, so right. he he finished secondary school just as I was starting. And he was, he was like a second dad to me. And he... He had such passion for such, again, such innocent things, whether it's sport, comedy, politics, and music. He had a, he used to collect a lot of like pop singles and got me into the, the 80s charts that mm. way. And he, yeah, he, he just had such a joy for life. He left quite a sort of, uh, so his name is Dan. Uh, he 
he was a huge Crystal Palace fan, which we can come on to when I talk sport. But uh, he <laughs> he lived quite a sort of small life. He only I think he only went on a plane once to go on a school trip to history trip to America. He lived in Croydon and then eventually in Kensington. He's very sort of sort of a, by a lot of people's standards quite a small life, but he filled it with such passion for the things that he loved. Mm. And that's definitely come down to me. So, yeah, the, this thing that he loved, the election computer game. I don't know anyone else who'd be so fascinated by something that looks to the outsider so, firstly, impenetrable, but also <laughs> dull. Yeah. Like, and, or you used to play a test match computer game where I'm pretty sure you didn't control the players. You just basically watched it. And he had a little he had a little exercise book and he'd write down the scores. Like, oh, Jack Russell caught Healy, bold alderman, for like five. And, he, and he'd keep that. He's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm controlling this. And he was- and doing it last he, five days. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so he felt like that when I wanted to have a go on the computer after him. Um, so yeah, he, he, he just had such a joy. And his interest in comedy- just absolutely slingshotted me into where I've mm. ended up working. Yeah. And um, when did he die, your brother? So he, he died in 2015. Right. So this eight years ago as we're, as we're talking mm. now. Yeah, and, no um, time at all. Yeah, it's gone in the blink of an yeah. eye. And yet, as a sports fan, it, it's sort of hateful that I can now count it in Olympiads or World Cups as well uh, as years. That he didn't see. That he didn't see. That it, I know. So it feels when you're bereaved and there's something they've, they're missing and you can't, text them because we now live in our phones so much you you think surely i could send that and he he, Mm -hmm. he'll come he'll reply because we that's where our loved ones are so much and it obviously nothing comes back and you 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 realize that i mean that's why the pandemic was so weird in a way this will sound a little bit weird but just when it comes to sport i was a tiny bit glad because i that idea that it could stop Mm. and there was a a lack of things that he was missing yeah, weirdly, gave me a chance to take a breath, and sort of it, that was still that was like five years mm. after he died, yeah. and yet even then I felt that little bit of okay, it's all right, Dan, you're not missing an FA Cup final or whenever it was. The crazy thing was being a huge fan of horse racing and the Grand National, like he was. There was I don't know if you know ITV put on a virtual Grand National with computer graphics <laughs> with a, with all the horses that would have run, and I know I can tell you damn sure Dan would have counted that just as much as the real race. You could bet on it in the in the bookies and wow. all the rest of it. Now, and I, I write in my book about this. So maybe that, that begs the question, should they just do it like that? Anyway. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'd say it's the, sort of the elephant in the room or should that be the elephant, you know, covered in tarpaulin yeah. on the first fence? But yeah, Dan, Dan not being around, you know, is an everyday, you know. So I wrote this book. It's called A Fan for All Seasons. Mm. And the idea was, it's basically a celebration of him and of sports and of coping through sport with with grief, but it was it wasn't intended to be a book. What happened was I inherited weirdly his Crystal Palace season ticket, uh-huh. which is not something you tend to inherit from a brother, especially as I'm a Spurs fan. For my <laughs> sins, it's a different form of suffering. So um, yeah, so I inherited his Palace ticket. Some people would say fate worse than death. <laughs> not and, my younger brother, oh, who is also a lifelong Palace fan and oh, has, so has a season ticket. I know, <laughs> no, no, it's something for me to laugh about. Exactly, right. And that's the thing. So for me and Dan, some people say, why, why weren't you also a Palace fan? And that the whole point of our brotherly relationship was we were, it was the friendly rivalry. Mm-hmm. It would have, if we were just Palace fans, we wouldn't have had that joshing that we, that we loved so much. But it was the 2015-16 season. I became his sort of eyes and ears at Palace. 
and went to the whole season. It was an amazing season. They went, they got nearly got up towards the top four before Christmas. Then they like absolutely plummeted into a relegation battle. And in the middle of it, they got went on a cup run and they ended up in the final against Man United. Yeah. And they nearly won it. Just like should in have won 19, it. they should have won it. They mm. even had a man advantage. And there are just certain moments in life, and we all get it, where you just think the scriptwriter upstairs has planned it. The first year Dan was a season ticket holder was nineteen ninety. And that was an FA Cup final, the big one yeah. against United, three all. You know, the incredible drama. Obviously, the the replay. Don't talk about that. But <laughs> but it was it, that was sort of a seminal moment for me and Dan. We're growing up. I was ten. He was ninety. He was there at the final. Mm. He was he was eighteen then. And um, just before Italia ninety, just before the Premier League, and we felt like we were at the start of something. And then the first season after he died, there they were, back at Wembley, FA Cup final. Man United, mm. and they nearly win it again. And it, it was this strange ring composition. I took my mum to the final, and we, we were sort of trying to work out whether we were happier that they'd lost or not. Because in a weird <laughs> way, if they'd won at the first time of asking without Dan being there, it might have been too, oh, much. No, yeah, too much. So in a weird way, that sort of romantic failure, which is so palace, mm. sort of just put a sort of a lid on that on that season. So then the question was, what to do next? And the natural thing was to sort of keep going to Sellers Park. But then I thought, well, when does that stop? Do I do that for the rest of my days? You know, can't do, live his life. Yeah. yeah. So I thought, how can I manage it another way? And then I, I hit upon this idea that, because we, I don't know about you, but as a, you're a football fan, we loved all sports, everything. And I mean anything. We <laughs> would watch Kabaddi highlights on Channel 4, <laughs> junior kickstarts. The, the maddest one maybe is we go to the, do you remember the Royal Tournament? They used yeah. to hold it at Scott and they used to think of the gun competition where... You take the gun apart, put it over the barrier and then put it back together. Yeah, again. two teams of sailors mm-hmm. like, carrying a giant cannon over a chasm. <laughs> We've all done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even in that, we had to have our teams. So, uh, so I was Fleet Air Arm and he was Devonport and all that stuff. So we watched anything. And so I thought, how can I be true to that? And so I thought, there were so many different sports we'd love to have gone to and never managed to, or big events. So I thought, why don't I try and see as many of those as I could in a year? Mm. And so that's what I did. And I just said yes to everything. I, I would see what was on that weekend. So Brilliant. from rugby to handball, darts, snooker, Wimbledon tennis, Wimbledon greyhounds. I went to the last ever night at Wimbledon Greyhound wow. Stadium before they knocked it down. We used to go there for Dan's birthday. It was his favourite place to spend his birthday. Wimbledon dogs. And you could have a meal in the restaurant mm. and watch it. It was very 80s. It was quite a nouveau riche thing to do. Not that we were ever riche. <laughs> nouveau or vieux. Um, so, but, but, you know, it was something to do of a, yeah. of a Friday or Saturday night. But it, that last night it really did feel strange. There was a mm. real mix of emotions. But... I know if Dan had been around, like, he would have had that date in his diary, like, months, years in ahead. As soon as he knew, he'd be like, "We we have to be there." So I was again watching it for two, and so then eventually like, I I did all this stuff, and um and, and as just for as an exercise, I started writing it down, and um a friend of mine, Charlotte, who was at Bloomsbury Sports, I mentioned it to her, and sort of act, sort of almost accidentally pitched it to her, and and she started crying. And she said, that's the first time I've ever cried in a book pitch. And, and, she, and she went, that's a good thing. <laughs> I was a bit like, it's that bad. But uh, so she said, yeah, you should, you should, you should oh, write lovely. this down. And so now it's a long, long time later. It's like eight years on. and um, But now it's a book. 
So I finished my whole sporting odyssey at the Worlds in London. And Dan's ashes are actually scattered outside the stadium because wow. the, the Olympics meant so much to him. Wonderful. And, uh, but uh, yeah. Was that your second thing, sport? I do have a sporting thing, which we can... Okay. Uh, Let's talk about that then. Let's move on to yeah. the second thing. So the sporting thing I would put in is I'd love to put in the London 2012 opening ceremony. Ah. If that can exist as a thing inside the time capsule, is that mm. possible? And obviously I, I would extend that out to the, the whole games itself, but particularly that night yeah. because I was there. Oh, my word, were you? I was there. And the reason I was there was because Dan and I, as soon as they announced the games were in London, we were like, we have to be there. How many people alive get to experience the Olympic Games coming to their home city? It felt like the gods were saying, you were going to have this present. This is, And I was going to be 32 by prime of life for this, the greatest show on earth. And so I remember when the announcement happened, I was like, I had to be there. And obviously that sort of thing dwindles and you're like, yeah, whatever. But then the ticketing system happened and Dan and I worked out how to cheat or break the ticketing system, which was all you had to do was constantly click it. And uh, so I was working at Hattrick at that point. Um, Luckily enough, I was in development, which meant that I had time on my hands. (laughs) Which meant I did an awful lot of clicking and Dan did as well. And I was click, 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 click. And I managed to get something to virtually every day of the games. You know, I didn't mind what it was, you know, gymnastics, volleyball, table tennis, anything. And then at one moment, suddenly it came up opening ceremony. No. Restricted view. That's fine. £20, 12p. Oh, my word. Two tickets. And I almost, I was clicking so fast, I almost clicked past it. And I went, this can't be real. And I got it. So I was there for 40 quid. Took my mum. As a birthday present. I was like, that's being a good son, isn't it? Mm. And um, we were sort of behind the tree. Do you remember the big tree at the opening ceremony? I where, do remember Where Branagh did his... Yeah. So we were sort of behind that, but quite high up behind it. And I think people literally in the row behind us had paid over 150 quid for their ticket. And mm. we were there on the cheap. And the night itself was amazing because you, you, we all saw what happened. In the stadium, it, it sort of looked a bit weird because it was there were so many people doing so many different things and you didn't you didn't have the benefit of the Danny Boyle direction on TV. No. So you're a little bit like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> what do I look at? Yeah, gradually the, the sort of bucolic field turned into the Industrial Revolution out of nowhere. and But it, it was just overwhelming. And even after that, when the teams came through for about an hour and a half, the greatest athletes in the world were parading. And, I, and I, so I did classics at university. I, was, I, um, I love ancient Greece and Rome. I'm a, a geek on that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, this is something that's been happening for thousands of years, obviously with a big gap. Yeah. But the Greeks did this. And now because and I love the fact that the Greeks go first as a sort of homage <laughs> yes, to the fact absolutely. that it's their gift to the world. Mm. And then obviously when Team GB came out and they heroes by Bowie, it was, it was something else. And I'll always be able to turn around and say I was there. But the games meant something to me and Dan more. I think even more than being a Palace fan, that two weeks of sport, I think, defined him mm-hmm. in a way in which I I don't think he, nothing ever topped it. And I suppose the other thing that I want to put in the time capsule is the joy I think it felt for the nation. Because I remember mm-hmm. before it, no one, not, none of my friends anyway, seemed that bothered in the weeks leading up to it. And I was mm-hmm. like, it's the Olympics. It was a bit weird. Yeah. People, I think people were uncertain about it. And then it happened. And Danny Boyle's genius was to transform, I think, the nation's view of itself and the world's view of us Mm. in a single show. It really did create this feel-good factor. Mm. And then it seems to me we've lost it. Yes. 
And so that's the reason I want to keep, I want to save yeah, yeah. it. It is, it, it is hard to believe that it's just over 10 years ago that that's how it felt, yeah. particularly if you visited London or walked around London. You didn't even have to go to the event to feel it. That's it. For, for people not from London, they might not realise the gravity of this, but you're on the tube and everyone's talking to each other. Yeah. That just doesn't happen. We were showing the best of ourselves and I have to pinch myself what's happened in the 11 years hence. That, Astonishing, isn't it? That, and you look at the people complaining about the NHS now, and because it's been run into the ground, and and yet the the fact that Danny Royal turned it into this triumphant celebration that we that we have this, mm. the two probably biggest things that this country can be proud of in the post-war period are two sets of three letters: mm. the BBC and the NHS, and there they were in concert, yeah. being portrayed all over the world as this fantastic thing that we have created. It was British and brilliant. Yeah. And I suppose that's the link with my spectrum. But I'm not a patriotic person. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I sort of feel like we, that's a bit naff. <laughs> but I'm not a big flag waver. But the, that eccentricity sort of links the sort of, the, maybe all the things I'm going to say, but the the spectrum and, and the, that opening ceremony was just, it was just note perfect. I mean, how, mm. how did he do that? It's just. Uh, do you know, sadly, I can't really say whether you're right or not, because I got so excited by it that my wife and I went out for dinner early so we could be back in time to watch it. I drank a bottle of wine <laughs> because I couldn't stop. I was so excited. Then I got home and opened a bottle of wine and I drank that. And then when I opened the third and lay down on the sofa, I fell asleep, <laughs> only to wake up to vomit. So that's okay. my memory of that night. Sadly. That's a special night. It's a terrible, you know, terrible you know. thing. And it was simply that childish excitement overtook me. That's amazing. It was that, it meant that much to you. No, I, I know exactly what you mean. I was so excited by it. But you've I seen it since, am. have you? You've seen, I have you seen were... it since, yes. I've watched it. Because they, they and played in fact, it. a friend of mine, uh, Will Bowen, who is a friend, and I keep trying to get onto this podcast because he's amazing, he designed the tree of life that got in the <gasps> way of the rest of it for you. Wow. Mm. I was astonishing. Uh, Please a, say for me that that helped sort of just fill my soul. Honestly, that mm. that night it does mean an awful lot to me, and and the games as well because as I said I was there every day pretty much. So that for me is something that needs saving. I saw the very first performance of, and I know it was the very first performance because I was at a house that Richard Curtis and Rowan Atkinson shared, and Rowan came downstairs and performed the classical pianist sketch. And so I saw the very first performance of that thing that he then did uh, for the world at the Olympics. It was so weird. That's amazing. Mm. I mean, that's that's history yeah. that you were witnessing there. I mean, well, actually, Rowan brings us on to my third choice. If right, you, know, if you want a segue. Okay, yeah, let's move on. Let's put that opening ceremony and the whole atmosphere and the way that everybody felt, let's put that in the time capsule. That's the second thing. Excellent. Okay, John, let's segue nicely into number three well if there's room now for anything else okay sorry for the interruption but now for everyone except Acast plus subscribers here are some adverts thank you for your patience see you in a sec hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. Right, let's get straight back to John Harvey and see what else comes up as he reveals the other things he'd want in his time capsule. Rowan Atkinson brings me into the third choice because I thought long and hard about something I want to put in that sort of captures the comedy I love and also my love of history. And so I'm going to ask to put in Blackadder. Brilliant. And I'll even be more specific because I'd like it to be my old VHS tapes of Blackout. <laughs> because then you also get between the episodes, which we'd record off the TV, you get those lovely bits of continuity. Yeah. And I, I loved all that because it is that portal back into the past. And I thought, well, time capsule, that's you, what, what you want to do. So my old VHS tapes, but of Blackadder, because I think up there with Only Fools and Horses and Forty Towers, this was a show that... I was watching way too early. It wasn't meant for seven-year-olds. but And there are gags that I was not getting at seven. They're probably gags I'm not getting even now at 43. But it was, it was so astonishingly brilliant. It was so universal that the whole family could enjoy it together, which is mm. not true of many things. No. Is it not at least in my house? But all of us loved it. We could all speak it verbatim. I think it's also, it's, it's a really good lesson, what we were saying earlier about giving something time, because the first series isn't a patch on no, the rest of it. No, once they realised that it was better to have Blackadder as the intelligent character rather than him, in a way, sort of performing a precursor of Mr Bean. Mm, yeah. He's playing the fool. That's it. And and also, it was quite expensive, the first series. It, it looked fantastic. And I think they, by just luck, the BBC said, you can have more, but we'll halve the budget. And so they ended up with these cardboard sets, which contributed to it there's this lovely scene i mean the, the famous scene where rick mail comes in as flash art yes in blackadder 2 and um he throws percy through the door and it, <laughs> the, the entire set looks like it's gonna go it's just wonderful and um it's it's shot in these tiny little three-walled rooms mm. and it's it, it works so wonderfully and it yeah it, so i went off and did classics at university and so I was part of me was like, oh, do I need to put something in to reference the the Greeks or the Romans, like Life of Brian, or all these things? I thought, well, Blackadder just it helped cement that love of history for me. Yeah. And uh, when I was at school, the teachers would refer to it. 
they would say Queen Elizabeth I, that's probably the best portrayal of her because she was histrionic. Mm-hmm. She, they, By all accounts, she, would, she had these wild mood swings from being sweet to being <laughs> murderous. Yeah. And, and Miranda's performance captures it. Like brilliantly, so my teachers were saying, and of course it goes without saying the the fourth series, the as particularly the end of Blackadder goes forth is, it I, almost makes me cry thinking about it. That level of bravery and sub, again very British subversion. Blackadder goes forth does that better, I think, than anyone. I think so much so. I mean, I think isn't Michael Gove criticised Blackadder goes forth for its sort of portrayal of Field Marshal Haig and sort of the General Melchick character, mm. where to me. They couldn't be more right. And there's no, that, no. It's summed up by that wonderful moment where, uh, you know, they're looking at the map of the amount of territory that they've retaken. <laughs> and Melchett says, you know, what's the scale? And Darling says, it's one to one, sir. <laughs> so it's like, hey, literally, this is what we've recaptured. That's it. The square of territories. Oh, look, there's a little worm. You know, <laughs> so this is now British. And um, that sums it up. We had more men. I hope I'm not misquoting this, but I think that is a statement that he made. We will win the war because we had more men. I may be thinking that because of, oh, what a lovely war, where it's said in that, but I doubt very much they could have said it Mm. if it wasn't actually a quote. But the question is, did they have more men than the German had men, or did did we have more men than the Germans had bullets? That's the problem. Well, quite. Because I think they just had, they were stuck in 19th century warfare Mm -hmm. where... You're like, well, we've got we've got horses and we've got more men. We'll 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 win. And yeah, no, it's a it, terrible tragedy. The whole it, thing. It, it's it, awful. Yeah, it's in one sense glib for me to be bringing it back to Blackadder because we're talking about a comedy series and and, and the most horrific thing that can befall any of us in in, in sort of armed conflict. It's staggering that, that we're they're doing it. and that the Ukrainians are, are suffering this at the moment and other wars around the world, yeah, which yeah, we mustn't right. you know, belittle either. You know, but Blackadder. I think his history is so important because it both for sense but in fun ways and serious ways, you learn about the past and that helps you understand the present and the mm. future. And it that helped me want to study it more and and took me, you know, into university where I where I did um, you know, the Romans and the Greeks and it is to bring it out of just the, the the horror of war into history more broadly, Blackadder was that first moment for me, and very early in my life that made me see how history can open your eyes. So I was aware, even as a child, that there'd been a war, and I was aware of you sort of learn about the Armada and Queen Elizabeth really early. There was there was this thing called Discovery when I was a kid, which was a sort of a pack that came out every week. You know those magazines you mm. get, which cost like the first one's fifty p, and then they're like fifteen quid for issue <laughs> two. It was like that, but but you you could build something every week, and the first week was Elizabeth, and you could build a sort of Francis Drake's galleon or whatever. Yeah. And so I was aware of Elizabeth first before Blackadder. The interesting with Blackadder is the third series, which they picked the Regency, mm. which I think no one knows anything near as much about. No. So the series was also opening my eyes to new things. And mm-hmm. I think, the, and I suppose for me as well, to come on a segue to another bit of my life, was it had that election episode. So he was, again, Dan's love of politics, mixing with comedy. And there's this incredible by-election scene where um, Jeff McGiven is standing at the back dressed stupidly looking yes. stupid parts. yeah. And that was again. We used to get played that at school. This is this is just funny. This is an excellent satire on politics. Little did I know that basically thirty <laughs> years later, that was me. And so Blackadder sums up not only because I mean Rowan playing the lead character so brilliantly. I mean I've been very lucky enough since then to to meet Rowan, and I'm, mm. uh, and he's fantastic. Mm. And the idea that me, age seven, would have any 
kind of involvement in comedy back then when it was just you know the, the thing I did to make me happy. Yeah. Um. And yeah, because we had we had a very unusual childhood in many ways. We were we lived in eleven houses in my first eleven years. Property dealer. Well, alcoholic property dealer. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so we couldn't hold on to property. We had, we had good moments and we had bad moments. And the comedy was the spine of what kept... Because it, it was... We had this monoculture where if something was on BBC Comedy, BBC One or BBC Two, millions mm. and upon millions would watch it. And so you felt like you were part of a shared experience, yes. which I think is much harder to get hold of now. And there, there are pros and cons for that. You know, people would say, well, you know, why should we all have the same stuff rammed down our throats? You know, yeah, yeah. But... But, they, we, we but now lost. the discussion is, where are you up to in this series? Yes. We're so spoiled for choice that we are all guilty of the doom scrolling where it's Friday night and you want to watch something and you spend half the night <laughs> deciding yeah. what to watch. When in the old days, you just watch whatever was on the, the TV or you might pop to Blockbuster Video, spend five minutes browsing and, and that was it. And mm. you, had, you know, So I think we've lost something there. And uh, the joy of Blackadder was it taps into that thing that despite everything, there was this shared comedy narrative in the country. And and that election episode sort of typifies the journey I've been on from going from just being a fan to actually being involved in British politics in a, in a mad way. Yes. And if I if I do anything to sort of emulate that kind of vibe, then, then I've done all right. Fantastic. Well, we put that in, definitely, Blackadder. So let's move on then to your fourth thing, which I think is almost certainly going to be your political involvement in the destruction of... Other people's lives, and rightly so. Well done. <laughs> it isn't, actually. No! Because <laughs> I thought about putting the bucket in. Yeah? So well, I'll, I'll give you two options. You can choose which one of these you think should go in. So I'll put on the sidelines, you've got my original bucket, the Lord Buckethead bucket. Yeah, yeah. Because now I operate as Count Binface, mm-hmm. which is all due to a battle on the planet copyright. <laughs> <laughs> because, so what happened was, uh, I'll try and tell this story in a nutshell. I'm a big fan of the worst movies ever made. The ones that are so bad, they're brilliant. And another sort of contender for my time capsule, which is sort of on the subs bench, is a film called Parting Shots by Michael Winner, which is so bad, it's astonishing. It has the most incredible <laughs> cast. Bob Hoskins, Oliver Reed, Ben Kingsley, John Cleese, Diana Rigg, Joanna Lumley, Felicity Kendall, the list goes on, Peter Davison. Um, but the the star of the film is um, Chris Rea. <laughs> who has never acted before or since. No. Um, and uh, it's basically a comedy take on Death Wish. You know, the guy finds out he's got six weeks left to live and kills everyone who's been mean to him. Ha, 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 There's so many things wrong with it. And yet I've probably watched it more times than the rest of the human race put together. Because I'm sort of fascinated by how it managed to get so many good ingredients so wrong. Mm. But this love of watching bad films um, got me and my friend Tom, who we met at university, we did, so I met him doing classics. And, um, but both of us were far more interested in sort of crappy movies than, than, than sort of Virgil or Tacitus. <laughs> and we stumbled upon this film called Gremloids. No one's heard of it. No. In America, it's called Hyperspace. In Britain, it sounds like a sort of a cream to deal with. But it was a parody of Star Wars that came out in 1984, which is three years before Spaceballs, you know, the Mel Brooks yeah. movie. And it's got quite a cool cover. And that on its own made me into it. Well, we've got to check this thing out. No one's heard of it. So we got a VHS of it off eBay, watched it. It's it's a shonky, shoddy film. The effects are awful. It's sort of known for being a bad movie. But the baddie in it 
is this buckethead guy. He looks like Darth Vader, but with a cylinder on his head instead. And he's, he doesn't really do anything. He's, he, he, treads, he treads in a cow pack. That's the only thing I can remember that's quite funny. <laughs> in it. But he's not even called Buckethead in the film. He's just called the leader. And in the credits, it says Lord Buckethead. We didn't think hide nor hair of it. That, the, no. the only interesting thing was it was a crappy film. And at the end of it, you go online and read the trivia, like I men always do. And it would say, did you know someone dressed up as Lord Buckethead and stood against Margaret Thatcher in the 1987 election in Finchley? We thought... No way. You go on YouTube. There he is. Wow. Sat next to Maggie. And they said, did you know someone also dressed up as Lord Buckethead and stood against John Major in Huntington in 1992? And there he is. And that election, he's standing next to Major. All he's doing, is he doesn't speak. says nothing. He's just holding a copy of the VHS of <laughs> Gremlins, trying to flog it. And the reason was, it turns out, apparently, the guy under the bucket owned the video label that had bought the rights to Gremlins <laughs> like, on tape. And hilariously, this guy's name was Mike Lee. Not that one. <laughs> um, and he's still around at time of recording. You know, I'd love to talk to him about his experiences. But then they disappeared. Buckethead disappeared. And me and my friend came across this 25 years later. We thought, oh, wouldn't it be funny to... You've got another Tory prime minister... Wouldn't it be funny to bring him back? And but we thought, well, the next election wasn't due till 2020. So we thought, oh, well, it's just an idea. And we forgot about it. And then Theresa May called that snap election. And we thought, shall we? So we thought, how can we be sure that we don't want to tread on any toes? So I lodged freedom of information requests with Finchley and Huntington. And eventually Barnet Council, who looked after Finchley, came back to me on their one, which is the, so the Thatcher one. And they said, well, we don't have to tell you this, but we have looked into it. We've even contacted the returning officer and we have no idea who it was. And I thought, well, that's interesting in itself, right? That is That good, someone stood against the PM. No one knows. Um, so we thought, well, okay, well, we don't know how to, to deal with it. We looked at the who made the film in America, mm. this American film producer, and we tried to find information. He had basically no credits till then. We genuinely thought he was dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I thought, well, well, let's give it a go. It's too good a joke not to do. And the idea was I was just starting doing standing, stand-up at that point. I thought, well, I'll do this. No, I'll be the standing at the back, dress stupid party, but then I can do some stand-up about it. Like I went to the hustings and was ad-libbing. Of course. And, we, and, and, and then we, we, we did a music video. And it just suddenly we, we sort of organically turned him into a character. Then the election happened and it went boom, viral around the world. So much so that Thursday night I was in a sports hall in Maidenhead standing next to Theresa May as she self-detonated her majority. Mm -hmm. The following Sunday, like three days later, I was being flown first class to uh, New York by John Oliver to be on his HBO show as the sort of star surprise guest. And I I was just completely overwhelmed by it. Like I got on the plane and they said... um, which champagne would you like? <laughs> I've never been asked that, that question before. No. And, and then I got off the plane, got in this cab, and I said to the guy, I said, do, do, do you know anything about what's going on here? And he went, buddy, you're around the news. And yet I hadn't told anyone. Like this at this point, not even my a, a couple of my friends knew because I thought it was too much fun. So Jimmy Mulville at Hattrick didn't know. No one at work no. knew. It was a, I was a rubbish Batman. With the secret identity, walking around New York. And it was so much fun. Um, but then what happened was this American film producer, I got in touch with him through a literary agent who said, do you want to do a book as Buckethead? And I said, well, I don't have the rights. I don't, by all means, talk to the guy. And he wanted to take control of the character. Right. So I'm denied and it was not very pleasant. And in the end, I thought, well... Forget I'll, it, yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I invented Binface instead. Yeah. And so... Yeah. So since then, we've had 2019 election where I had to take on not only Boris, but this sort of fake, as I saw it, fake bucket head who stood pretending to be me in yeah. my eyes. It was very peculiar. 
And then London mayoral election. Oh, you're talking of- officially to London's ninth choice for mayor. Well, <laughs> big faces, not me. My but... choice. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I'm pleased to hear it. I beat uh, Piers Corbyn and UKIP, you know. Amazing. Um, so that was fun. And then um, just done the by-election. Uh, in Uxbridge, Binface was the only candidate left from the general election who's saying I'm still standing. I'm like, I'm the, I'm, I'm the only, I promised to be your MP for that, yeah. the term of the Parliament. I'm keeping my promise. Yeah. And your promises are really interesting <laughs> and really, I think that you know you could have gone down the line of bananas for everyone yeah. or something. You know, and your bins would be collected twice a day. Yeah, you could have gone down that route, but you didn't. The joy of it is, I'd like to think that Binface has these policies which people. First, they go, that's funny. But secondly, they also go, actually. (laughs) So, you know, some of them, like, you know, the the croissants, you know, for one pound. Weirdly, apparently, the the government are genuinely considering price cappings on the supermarket (laughs) (laughs) to deal with inflation. It's like like Ben Face is the head of the curve, you know, and um, renaming London Bridge after Phoebe Waller. I mean, you know, this is. This is tourist manna from heaven, right? Who wouldn't want to see that? That's the point. They make sense. Yeah. If you look at them closely, you can go, actually, do you know what? That might be a good thing to do. Yeah. Well, my, my favourite one from that perspective, which I really hope might actually be policy, is is that Binface is a public proponent of committing to the £100 billion renewal of the Trident weapon system. Okay. Right. But he's an equally firm proponent privately of, of not building it <laughs> and paying any a single penny for it because they, they are secret submarines, so no one will ever know. <laughs> so it's a win-win. And uh, there is a part of me that genuinely hopes that those um, submarines in Faslane mm. are made of a papier-mâché. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> it's nothing it's a great bluff. Yeah. It wouldn't because be let's be honest, this country is skint. So yeah. it would make sense that we can't afford nuclear missiles. I'm afraid it's always <laughs> been my argument, which is that when people say, well, we can't afford everything, you know, I say, well, we seem to be able to afford something we're never going to use. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, um, of course, the argument is that it buys us a place at the top table. Yeah. And you sort of go, well, I spent most of my life not wanting to sit at the top table. Yeah. Well, I wonder if, in fact, the people that you're standing against in these things know any more about the world. They may look at Calvin Face as being the person who is worldly. Because my experience of all politicians, when you come across one that is worldly, that does seem to understand how the world works, they're always on the periphery. Mm. The ones in the middle have no idea at all. And I thought that Rishi Sunak the other day demonstrated that in the most powerful way, having tweeted... You left nothing out there. You left nothing out there. And Face replied... Well, that's the perfect epitaph to 13 years of Conservative government. <laughs> You've left nothing out there. Nothing. The roads, the rails, <laughs> clean water, everything. They, I, I, both Binface and I are in agreement on this. this. I'd ask any Conservative voter this, and I'd love to get an answer. Name me one thing, doesn't matter how big or how small, that has improved since 2010. And I would say previous Conservative governments and previous Labour governments, so governments of both stripes um, over the years have been able to say, well, we managed this, we managed it. Even the Thatcher's government, you know, which obviously is very divisive, um, but could turn around and say, well, the country was in deep economic straits. And however they did it, they could turn around and say, well, we were in a better state in... Uh, productivity. Yes, right, exactly. There you now, are. 
But I challenge anyone to say, yeah, this has got much better since 2010. Yeah, because you and I can find £100 billion for them, can't we? Not publicly. No, 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 not publicly. But privately, we can say, well, why don't you just put papier-mâché submarines there? Well, if Keir Starmer comes into power and a bit like, he said, oh, he's suddenly discovered £100 billion of North Sea oil. (laughs) (laughs) Watch this space. Yeah, But in my experience, there are actually, there's there's sane politicians and then there are the mad ones on on either side. Mm -hmm. And actually the sane ones, whether they're Labour or Tory, you get them off the record they all genuinely want to make things better, but they've just got different ways of wanting to to make things better. But it's the party system, I think, pushes people into these more unsound avenues. Mm. The fact that to get Brexit done, the Conservative Party sort of ate the Brexit Party and sort of UKIP part of the vote and has moved further to the right Mm -hmm. is a problem for politics because I think a lot of centre-right voters look at the Tories and go, well, where's my party gone yeah it, they're not my party but I, but i feel for voters who feel like that and they mm. yeah they and the like, labor party sort of moves to the right to fill that void exactly politics abhors a vacuum mm. and so you know there are lots of people on the left of the labor party scratching their heads because they're like where's my party gone going back to that tweet from rishi sunak the disturbing thing about it is not that he didn't know the phrase you've left everything out there mm. you've left everything on the pitch that's fair enough he's mm. a very busy man and probably isn't that bothered about sport, although he has to pretend to be. Yeah. So I could accept that he, did, he got that wrong. What's disturbing is that he's surrounded by a team of people who would have checked that tweet before it went out, and none of them knew yeah. that it was wrong. Yeah. And that's what's disturbing. You would think, as you say, like, you're the prime minister. It matters how you are seen. And I think he, because he, I get the impression that Rishi Sunak gets quite tetchy about how he is portrayed. Mm-hmm. You know, he spends a lot of money on his image. So you would think someone in there would have twigged that that wasn't the right way to do it. As, exactly as you say. I mean, he's by a million miles the richest prime minister mm-hmm. we've ever had. Although I think eventually Boris might rival him when he's earned the money. Yes. Yeah. Well, Boris is playing the long game. My, my, my bin face, he did have a time machine. He's, he's lost it. But he has seen the future, which is that uh, two years after bin face takes over in 2049... Uh, in 2051, a, a very aged, and decrepit <laughs> Boris uh, comes back as prime minister with 72 children behind him. No, it's 16 billion descendants, uh, a critical mass of whom have reached racing age. <laughs> Brilliant, but John, um, that's not the thing you're going to put in the time capsule. Good point. Yeah. No. So, I, so let's have a democratic vote. Okay. Well. I'm going to. I'm actually going to democratise the time capsule, and I'm, so I'll offer that. My other option is I thought I need to get something musical. Because I'm a, I, music's a big part of my life. I sort of grew mm. up playing the piano and uh, school choir, and all. it just it's you know, I live and breathe music. It's sort of what if I hadn't done comedy, it's the other thing I'd love to have done. Mm. So how could I represent that and the thing I love most in uh, in music? And so that is to put in "Get Back" by the Beatles. Ah. And there are a number of reasons why I chose it. But my dad, who you know. I'd, it's a, it gets a bad press for me occasionally because of yeah you know, he he drank a lot and um, you know we my past was uh, affected by that a fair bit. But he instilled with my brother all my loves, you know, love of writing, love of mm. trying to be funny and and things that are funny. And and he handed me, when I was 14, that's something, Brit, Britpop was just getting going. He gave me a bunch of Beatles albums. So while everyone else was listening to Blur and Oasis, I listened to Hard Day's Night, Sgt Pepper, The White Album and Abbey Road. Mm. And I could not understand why everyone was going crazy about Country House and the roll, roll with it. Because I was like, it's just this, but just not as good, right? Uh, yeah. And uh, it blew my mind 
how amazing it was. And it still does whenever I watch or listen to anything that the band did. And um, and it, so there's other reasons for choosing it as well. Um, the reason I choose Get Back, so this is the, the video, the documentary that came out, mm. which Peter Jackson, yeah, the Lord of the Rings director, touched up to make it look as if it was brand new, this footage of them mm. rehearsing you know, as they were sort of splitting up. But it's it's sort of sad and joyous at the same time. And it links to a couple of things in my life. So my wife, Sarah, and I first bonded over the Beatles. So mm. we, we met online. She's a comedy actor. Mm. And for our second date, she took me to, it was 2017, and a band in Camden was doing the whole of Sgt. Pepper. Because oh. the Beatles never played it. Never. None, none no. of those tracks ever they ever played live. No, you always think that at that point in their career, Paul McCartney was the one who was saying, mm. come on, everyone, let's do something. Yeah. But that doesn't come across in the film of Get Back at All, does it? You do get the sense of the, the joy of, the, of, all, of all of them. There's that incredible scene where Paul basically comes up with the song Get Back yeah. and it just emerges in front of our eyes. It's, it's astonishing. And I think lots of us have these sort of tenuous Beatles connections. And my mum and dad both saw them in very different ways. My dad went to see them at the Albert Hall at the height of Beatlemania and always used to say, I couldn't hear a note. No. He said uh, it was only worth it to see what Beatlemania was. He he was a huge Beatles fan. He was a musician. I get any musicianship I've got from him. He was a drummer. He had a band called The Gravediggers. <laughs> and uh, they apparently, he, according to him, he's not around anymore to ask him, but he said they supported the Stones wow. very, very early on. And he even played in Screaming Lord Such's band. Right. In the 60s, another little link with the novelty politics. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm technically, I suppose, a, a sort of a successor to, to Suchy. But uh, so anyway, so Dad saw the Beatles at the Albert Hall and said, you know, it was just, it's just insane. Mm-hmm. And my mum, she told them even earlier, it must be 62, they'd probably just come back from Hamburg. She would have been like 13, 14. And for some reason, she, her mum took her to something at, it was either the Dorchester or the Grosvenor Park Hotel, one of the Park Lane hotels. And um, they played a little concert for the sort of kids. It was the Beatles. They obviously weren't famous yet. And my mum sat cross-legged in the front row <sighs> as look, looking up at, at the Beatles. So they had their own little vibe. And then I, I did meet Paul once. Um, so this, again, another reason why this has to go into my time capsule, because it's sort of this moment of my life that I will always be just etched in my brain, which mm-hmm. is I used to work at the BBC and I was there for eight years and worked in loads of different departments, had a very, very big range of experiences, good and bad. But when I was there and I worked in comedy, you get to know TV Centre. TV Centre was an incredible building. Mm. You know, the, Nowhere else in the world was home to, you know, a world-famous news organisation, drama, comedy, sport, the lot under the same roof. It was, it was I mean, just astonishing. And obviously... <laughs> The top of the pops and other kind of things going on as well. But even then, and this is like 2007, 2008 or some, sometime around then, I discovered that on a Tuesday, later with Jules Holland would be on. And if you snuck down to Studio One in the afternoon, no one checked your pass. Just hang around. And you could just potter about. And I first time I saw Paul, they were rehearsing the Hootenanny. He was doing a duet with Kylie. And I got to watch that rehearsing. And Kylie came round offering everyone mince pies <laughs> and she offered me a mince pie and I was like, and I was on the point of taking it and I thought no don't push your luck if you take a mince pie off her someone's going to say who's that taking them I'll draw attention to myself <laughs> yes. and I could get kicked out so I thought no I, I didn't I refused Kylie a mince pie and instead watched them and that was that was in, I, you know that would be enough but mm. then I don't know how long later it was you can find the episode but 
he was with his band that he still plays with and he just happened to be on that week. I didn't know he was on that week. I went down to Studio One and there he was with his band. They're a little quartet. And I sat on a speaker and watched as he would have been about five metres away from me, mm. maximum. And they played I've Got a Feeling, which is one of my favourite tracks. And in fact, it was our first dance, me and Sarah at our wedding. And they just played this one of the tracks from the rooftop gig in front of me. And I, it, I was basically the only one in the studio with them. They mm. just, and I could not believe that it was happening. And then after it, I just thought, well, I've got to go and say hello. So I managed to somehow sort of wait around and I just shook his hand and said, Paul, it's just, it's such a treat and pleasure that you mean, you mean so much to me. Didn't know what to say exactly. But I've met enough celebrities who, when you, you say hello to them, I'm very, I'm not usually starstruck like that. But even so, I've met plenty of people, sports stars, I won't name them, who, um, you know, they, they, they don't give you the time of day or they'll sign your ticket, but don't even look at you. Mm. And Paul, who's, I would say, by a mile, the most famous person I've ever met, he looked me in the eye and smiled and said, thanks very much. That means a lot. And and he just, I know he, he, he doesn't know who I am. It doesn't care. But the fact that he was so gracious about it, mm. it lit me up. And so yeah, that for me, the, the get back thing, it mixes the latest, the fact that it's new, the fact that it, you know, it gave access to the, shows you the reality of them, but also shows you where, how it ended on the concert and, and sort of folds in lots of sort of family memories and, and mm. with Sarah. It's just a, so that's my, counterpoint to uh, the bucket well I'm willing to break the rules <laughs> always willing to break the rules I'm going to let you have both wow Mike I am I'm touched <laughs> we've extended the time capsule yeah, indeed you've got an extra, extra large one excellent well there we go there brilliant we go. so you just need to put in something that you'd like to get something rid of something small my choice for the thing to get rid of is it's not a small one <laughs> but I hope you'll allow me I'd like to get rid of the internet right well, I don't know how large or small that is. It might be infinitesimal. Exactly. Who knows? It's, yes, exactly. It just exists in the cloud. Mm. Uh, you know, it, um, what it, however, whatever it would take okay. to lock that away. Uh, because I've thought long and hard about this. Because I know the internet has provided us with many things. The paradox being this podcast. Quite. <laughs> but I'm going to go there because I think genuinely it's doing more harm than good. And I kind of miss life without it. And I, I'm just at that generation. A lot of people will think, oh, this is, again, like lots of my stuff is so filled with nostalgia. Mm. And increasingly, so I'm now in my 40s, I'm now very nostalgic about the 90s. So when I talk about the Beatles, I, I sort of you very much thought of the 90s as sort of a lame rehash of the best of the 60s. But actually, it was a time when, if you think about it, they talk about it like a holiday from history. It was post-Cold War, mm-hmm. pre-Putin. Mm-hmm. Um it was a sort of time when John Major's Cones Hotline would be a story in the news. <laughs> and you sort of think, my goodness, how innocent was it? And it was pre-internet. I mean, I didn't send an email till I went to university because we didn't have a computer that could do it. No. And that idea that I think what it's done to the arts in terms of the fact that everything is so available, it, it, with the tyranny of choice is, yes. I think, a problem. And the serious side of it, is, and this gets I'll get political, is that, Although the, the the internet provides us with incredible opportunity, I think we're squandering it because it's endangering our politics. I genuinely think social media and these hacks, the, the electoral commission has just been hacked and mm. got access to voter data. There, there's all these concerns about AI mm-hmm. and um, what could happen. We're, we're talking in 2023. There's there's going to be a general election and a US presidential next year, and mm-hmm. democracy feels vulnerable in a way that it 
hasn't done yes. for a long time, well, maybe in the last few years. Absolutely. If, if all those Trump voters believe it just because he says it, yes. well, how much more would they believe it if he can say it and then show them a film of it? Well, that's it. And that could be falsely generated. But, yep. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's that, that whole deep fake thing. And also, it's in, it's empowered this, you hear that phrase, um, well, this is my truth. Things that people laughed at when Trump's spokeswoman talked about alternative facts. Yes. But actually, that's, when you think that's an incredibly powerful phrase because that is what's happening and we, we look at our news that's very 1984 isn't it it is mm. and we live in a world now where it feels to me that the commercial powers for example the murdoch empire where uh, they would dearly love to see you know the bbc fall away a lot mm-hmm. of people would like to see that and instead be left with say deregulated news like we have in america mm-hmm. you see the I, I don't know how channels like gb news and uh, talk tv have been allowed to happen because they i think ofcom even says gb news isn't a news channel that's the only but it's called a news channel and yes. people think it's a news channel and yet there are people talking clear conspiracy theories that are, are not based in fact in a way which never used to happen and no. and it and the, the internet has created things like qanon which which led to the capital riots in america and the world's always been unstable. I'm not being naive. I'm not trying to say that we, we lived in some wonderful panacea of a world in the 90s. But it does seem to me that Pandora's box is open. Mm. And we, it's like we don't... Uh, I sort of joke about it as Binface. It's like the it's like we've, we've got the, this incredible power, but it was invented before we realised how to manage it. Yes. Um, I'm not trying to say we, we're all doomed. If, but, it, but, if it self-educates, as it were, it could educate itself to the point beyond our need. Yeah. The theory is that you're not going to end up in a Terminator 2 scenario, but a machine could override its programming and and just not care. We would be irrelevant in a way. The very fact that we're even having a a chat here in in a a lovely living room in Tunbridge Wells about the end of the world. But this all stems from the internet. And to go back to the Terminator thing, there is the storyline of the guy inventing it they're going back and they try and you know kill him to stop him inventing it and of course the fact is that if one person didn't invent it someone else would but going back to the olympic ceremony which i think about as perhaps the most recent high point of our country and how we did feel happy and glorious you know at that moment and yet there's this moment where tim berners lee is there in the stadium tapping away on a computer and all across the stadium lights up his famous four-word phrase when he invented the World Wide Web, which is, this is for everyone, which sounds lovely. He made it free, but it also sounds like a supervillain pressing return <laughs> and wanting to wipe power. This is it's for, for everyone. everyone. You all deserve yeah. it. Yes. Have some of that. <laughs> and that also feels kind of true to me. So I, I, I know it's a big one. And I know it would we would zip out of existence on this podcast if the internet was locked away. Mm. But I do hanker for the very tail end of that period before the web became what it was, where I felt like things were going okay. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to go back to a time when, in fact, like you with your Spectrum games, people are listening to this podcast on a cassette yes. that they bought, a C90, yes. so that we can fit it all on. Or, or one of those And where, where this takes an ad break and everybody has to fast forward through the ads, you have to turn the tape over. Perfect. There we are. I'd like to think I'll listen back to this in, in the future and go, oh, you miserable, cynical <laughs> sods. Or that, that, in fact, it turns out to be the saviour of mankind. That, in fact, yeah. you know, what we do is is eventually we do use it in the way that hopefully it was meant to be used. Yeah. Which was use it to free people up 
rather than to prejudice them and give them misinformation. Yeah. That would be nice. The very first guest on this podcast was Stephen Fry, and he talked about the fact that when the internet was first invented, he was one of the strongest arguers for the fact that it was the greatest thing that was ever going to happen to humanity, and it was going to finally solve all the problems. It was going to bring us all together. All that mistrust and all the lack of information about each other, not knowing each other, this was the thing that was going to get us all to understand each other, and it would lead us into a humanity where everybody looked out for everybody else. And he said he was completely wrong, which is very sad, isn't it? Mm. There's almost something like a sort of classical irony about the fact that it both simultaneously is the biggest opening up of everything you could wish for. And you just have to look at something like Wikipedia Mm -hmm. and think what an astonishing resource and achievement that is, that that should even exist, that that someone would create that. And that there are so many people out there who would constantly Mm -hmm. update and embellish and, in, and increase it. So it becomes, it, it, that's the very best of the web, which I'm sure was what was in Stephen Fry's head. Yes. And it is all that. And it connects people. The, the idea that you could send a, a letter to someone in Australia for free mm. and it gets there instantaneously is wonderful. My concerns are, sort of, are the political side of it. It's atomized so many things. And it, for me, I, I, on balance, although, I mean, it, it should be, the most incredible force for good. And I've done, I've, I've created things through it. You know, I've, I've had YouTube viral hits, the bin face and bucket head thing. I, I mean, that was all done uh, online and the mayoral thing. Cause it was during COVID. I didn't mm. leave my bedroom. <laughs> I, I just did it there with a green screen. I only turned up for the count, the count of the count, the rest of it. I just said, I'm, I said I was social distancing on Mars because the, uh, the intergalactic advice is to stay at least one planet away from Earth. You know, uh, so so you, that, the power that it gives you, and you look at all the online comedians that have done amazing things. And I, I know all that. And I, so, you know, it is incredible and it is created wonderful, wonderful things. But I'm just so scared at the moment about the fact that I think our democracy is the most precious thing. Mm -hmm. But we have a parliamentary system and I'm, despite all the things that are wrong with it, and it needs massive reform, the House of Lords needs to go, all these kind of things. I still like the system and I still want it more than anything that could be in its place. And I'm I'm so scared of the sort of populism movement that's happening. Trump, Boris Johnson was doing where Mm -hmm. he was just riding roughshod over any convention and just lying to suit his own ends. And I just feel like there's been such an erosion and the the internet has facilitated that, sadly. So I am going to shove into the time capsule the entire internet. Okay, I'll squeeze it in. But I think it might be like the electrons flying around the centre of an atom. There's much more space in it than you'd imagine. Yeah. So we could create almost a singularity of the internet. Yes. Do you think like crushing an atom, though, it's going to have slightly the wrong effect? Possibly. So if you can't get this episode only on bootleg copies on cassette, then you know the answer. That's the reason, exactly. And I'll see you in Cardboard City, as we're sort of (laughs) huddling around a sort of burning barrel and trying to survive. I hope that's not too too mean-spirited of me to put No, and it's your time capsule. You do what you bloody like. Cool. There we are. Okay, there are the six things yes. you want to put in your time capsule. Brilliant, John. Thank you so much for doing this. It's oh, lovely. To do it in person is a real treat. So yeah. thanks for having me. And I've, I've absolutely loved it. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and more importantly, my guest, John Harvey. That was fun, wasn't it? Actually, I hope you did enjoy it. 
If you did, then you can get all episodes as they're released by subscribing to this podcast on whichever podcast provider you choose. Hopefully, they will give you the chance to rate this podcast, which is very useful for promoting the show, and some even let you comment or review the whole shebang. It's lovely when people do, and it's delightful to read so many lovely comments. And one or two not so lovely. I'm sure the majority of them help to persuade newcomers to the pod to give it a go. So thanks. We have all sorts of links in the written description of this episode to do with John, our subscription service, Acast Plus, the charity Viva, a children's theatre group that we're involved with, and lots of other things. So do have a look. You can also find me and my time capsule on Instagram, Facebook, and that little hidden treasure where X marks the spot, previously known as Twitter. So do find us and say hello. You can get the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music on Spotify. And this was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. In fact, you can hear John and me chatting away about the podcast, our guests, and occasionally playing some bonus material every week on my time capsule, The Debrief, available only on Acast+. And that's your lot. Well, till next time. And if you're still listening now, well, you're slightly mad, obviously, but you've also given well over an hour of your time to me and John's efforts. And we really appreciate it. We're going to celebrate, of course, with a takeaway pizza. Yes! It's a complicated business. They cut it into six slices or 12. Hmm. Well, I always have the six. I mean, honestly, who can manage 12 slices of pizza? (laughs) Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.